I invite you to open your Bibles or devices to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. For those of you not familiar with the Bible or new to the faith, just go to the back of the book, then turn left. Handful of books, you'll make your way to 2 Timothy, one of Paul's epistles. And with this new year starting, we begin this five-week series called Gospel DNA where we will review the updated values and vision of South Charlotte Press. And, and our first value today gets right to the thing that the authentic church of Christ is built on, the truth of God's Word. And uh, you know what? I'm realizing I need glasses before I read the truth of God's Word. So, forgot those. Ah, growing old. Here we go. So, Believing God, our living God actually speaks to us through this word, through the power of the Spirit and in an authoritative sense. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Now, Paul is speaking to his protege, Timothy, about challenges that are going on in the church and how he can respond in light of the struggle with truth. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul says, you however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you had been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes right now. We need to do that in the Spirit, not only as we hear, but even through the speaker. Give him the Spirit. He really needs you too. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so we just finished Christmas, and Christmas time often reminds me of a, a gift that just keeps giving to for Elizabeth and for me. Four years ago, Elizabeth got both of us a very unique Christmas gift. We'd been exploring on Ancestry.com our kind in our spare time, kind of our family stories and histories, and wondered where our families were exactly from. So she ordered two DNA tests associated with Ancestry.com, and after a swab and a mailing, we got our test back and found out all kinds of interesting stuff. We found where our DNA placed us in our origins with nifty kind of Ancestry map that puts you where your, your people were from. That taps into the old genome project. And Elizabeth... Uh, 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 learned some interesting things, and while her maiden name is comes from a Dutch background, 
She had a lot of Northern European, Scottish, even Swedish. It was confirmed, something we knew from the past, that she had a Russian Jewish ancestor of Ashkenazi type going back some years. I had a vague sense that my people were from North Carolina with Scots, Irish, somewhere in there. And I learned what you all know about me, if you know me a little bit. I am actually old Charlotte, going way back before the revolution. And and my people go all the way back, all the way in North Carolina before the revolution as well. Uh, They came almost exclusively from the UK, England, Scotland, and Ireland, almost equally divided in my DNA. Rob and Rachel, we're cousins. (laughs) The very next Christmas after that year, my daughter gave us another DNA gift. In a classic first world gift, she gave us a 23 and me for our dog, Finn. We, had told, we were told by our res, uh, the rescue shelter that he was part whippet and part terrier and, or uh, something like that. And one vet who shall not be named dared to call Finn a chihuahua to my wife. That did not go well. Instead, we found out that he was part Whippet, Bichon Freeze, Jack Russell, and somehow Labrador Retriever. He's a tiny little dog, so but he's a Labrador somehow in there. And, of course, Elizabeth was relieved he wasn't a chihuahua. Sorry for those of you who are chihuahua fans. So all that said, DNA told us something about us, And yes, even our dog, DNA, got to who we are, where we come from, and why we are here. And this week we're going to start examining the first of our five biblical values that describe who we are, where we come from, and why we do what we do here at South Charlotte Prez. And the first gospel DNA strand, if you're thinking of the double helix at this point, is the place where we all should start when we're talking about church, embracing Christ and his truth. Now, you got to know, when Paul wrote in our text today uh, to Timothy in the church at Ephesus, they were struggling with pressure, pressure about what is true inside the church and outside the church. And burning questions were rising up with all that we're hearing, all these truth claims around us. What is the real authority I should live by? What should I take seriously and follow as, a, as truth? And then that gets to another question as to why does this truth matter so much even for us doing life together in church? So in the dizzying array of truth claims, not only in their world, but in our world today, Paul tells us something to build our lives on together, starting in verse 10. Look at that with me. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. So Paul Uh, is writing to his young protege here in this this book. And he's writing to him as a pastor that he discipled for years. Uh, And his name is Timothy. Timothy was like a spiritual son to Paul. And he wrote to him not one but two letters in the New Testament. And his purpose in the letters was to coach Timothy on how to run church. 
he started um, doing this discipleship of Timothy years earlier as Timothy traveled around with him planning churches and started and doing evangelism in, in cities. But here uh, Timothy has finally landed in, in a church that Paul had started at Ephesus and continues to work there. Paul is discipling him. The book of 2 Timothy is in the same vein, except it's a call to endure, to endure and even thrive when there are all kinds of truth claims and hardships coming their way. You got to understand the people of God were experiencing in that time real pushback over what they believed. And what you might not realize is Paul himself knows this very personally right now in this text as he wrote it, in that Paul was writing the very last letter of his ministry in his own rough patch from a Roman prison literally weeks or months before his death. Now, Paul starts our passage by saying, you, however, and he's talking about Timothy here, and Paul is contrasting Timothy's emerging and faithful pastoral leadership in the church with others. And the others are in verses 1 through 9, where Paul reveals that there were internal problems in the church with false teachers. Uh, They were apparently stirring things up among the people by making truth claims that were not consistent with the Word of God. Earlier in 2 Timothy, Paul says these men were doing things like creating foolish and ignorant controversies in the church. They spoke of God with irreverent babble. They quarreled about words. This is what it means. No, this is what it means. They made a big deal about little things and then minimized the big things. First Timothy talks about similar folks in the church who created ridiculous rules to live by. Or, in some cases, even bagged the, the rules altogether. And the way he describes them is that they're all swerving from the truth. You know, you have this picture of a car swerving off the road uh, in this picture. That was what was going on inside the Ephesian church. The culture outside Timothy and the church was swerving like a demolition derby itself. Ephesus was a large metropolitan city like Charlotte. People from all over the Roman Empire and beyond went to Ephesus to do business and trade. It was one of the major business centers in the Roman Empire. There was an extensive exchange of ideas with all these worldviews and peoples coming around. Lots of conversation about a god or many gods more often than not. As if that wasn't enough, Ephesus was home base for the goddess Artemis or Diana, if you remember your, your Greek history a little bit. And I'll make a side note that the temple of Artemis was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And it was in Ephesus at this time. Clearly, there was a big system of religion that went along with the goddess Diana, and it was big money. Through the goddess cult, and with all these worldviews flying around, you can imagine the flow of truth claims inside and outside the church made for a bunch of little t-truths that were fighting among themselves to be the best. And if you were an Ephesian member of a church in this environment, you would have felt like you were getting bombarded uh, by Twitter 
or, or Instagram or X notices on your phone with one person saying, this is true, and the other person saying, no, that is true, and another person saying, no, you're wrong, I'm right, and the other person saying, no, I'm right, and you're wrong. And as if that wasn't enough, if you were following Jesus at the time, uh, and you were saying that Christ was the only true Savior and King of the world, and that the other gods weren't real, (laughs) you can bet they got pushback. If you said there was only one big T truth, an authoritative truth from one God in Christ, you bet, you can bet people would say, who are you to say that? Now, this gets to why we embrace truth and why that matters here at our church. We now live in a pluralistic and post-Christian culture where there is a distinct allergy to big T truth. You even heard it in the last few weeks around the controversy of the Harvard president, uh, Claudine, uh, I forgot her name, but you know, the, the one who's in the news, that, that one. You heard it in her testimony uh, around the whole business of Israel and things like that. Now, we could debate Israel right now. We're not going to go there. Or DEI and things like that. But you heard it when she talked about, when they asked her what, what the view of, of uh, her institution was, she said, my truth is. My truth. That's the spirit of our age. And probably the biggest battleground around my truth these days, inside the church and outside the church, is sexual ethics. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, Secular Creed, points out that an increasingly popular truth in our culture, and you see even on signs and on bumper stickers, is this. Love is love. Love is love. Now, love is love is code language that if anyone of any sex loves someone of the opposite or same sex, then that's love. The implication is we should stop challenging any idea of people loving each other. Now, Christianity says something very different. It first says that God himself is truth, and that integrity and truth comes from within God himself. It also teaches that God defines love because God himself is the very origin and source of love. He knows what he's talking about when he talks about love. Now, of course, there are different kinds of love in our world. For example, the love that comes through friendship, and there's the love that comes in marriage and romance, among others. God has laid out clearly in Genesis 1 and Ephesians 5 what marital love looks like between a man and a woman. Furthermore, Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, meaning I'm truth. If you don't know what truth is, you're looking at it. The integrity of God in truthfulness is in me. And so in Matthew 19, Jesus himself addresses marriage as being between a man and a woman. To say, having said what I just said, though, to say that romantic and marital love is meant to be between a man and a woman is now cultural anathema because love is love. 
Families and friendships are being tested and torn apart with this right now. And, a, and there is that common question now more than ever, who are you to say that? Don Carson is call, calls this an interesting thing, that in this response to followers of Christ who claim there is one truth, we are experiencing increasingly what's called an intolerant tolerance. An intolerant tolerance. And in that experience that we can feel sometimes in real conversations that we have, or even the cultural pressure that we feel, we have to ask, how do we know this is true? How do we know the Scripture is true when we're getting so much pushback and pressure? Well, Paul has an answer. He tells Timothy to study two things amidst all these truth claims and ethical claims about what's right. Paul says, look at my whole life as an apostle living out big T truth of the gospel. In contrast to the other, we'll say, false teachers living in their little truth world. Paul, in other words, is saying, I'm a living parable of the gospel. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And in verse 14, he goes and points to his own family members, uh, like, uh, like Timothy's mother and grandmother, who were believers. He says they are parables of Christ. Paul is telling the struggling pastor, remember, remember to emulate me even in suffering and continue to follow me and my way as I follow really the way of Jesus. That's life-changing truth, even in suffering. Now, Paul reminds Timothy how he suffered on his first missionary journey to Pisidian Antioch and Lystra. And he brings up this suffering thing with, with uh, Timothy for a reason. Uh, you might remember uh, in Acts, Paul goes to, on his first missionary journey, and he goes through a town called Lystra, among others. And you know what happened to him there? This was his first missionary journey. He was stoned by the people of the city, then dragged out and left for dead. All for preaching the gospel. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, here's the reality. My whole life in Christ started with that big T truth that centers around Christ. And I've been experiencing suffering ever since. It's a part of the warp and woof of following Jesus. Now, if you follow Jesus today, this is hard to hear. But here's the thing you want to take to heart. And don't miss the gospel in this. Paul is saying there is a truth that we can hold and we can keep that will keep us going even in the worst of suffering. It's a durable, big-T truth that keeps you going even for decades of trouble like Paul experienced. And it's a big-T truth that kept Paul going even as he faced death in prison. Now, the question that comes for us is this. What is that big-T truth? Where does it come from? Well, Paul gets into it 
in verse 14 of our text. Look at verse 14 with me. Jump down that, that where it says, As for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul saying. Continue to follow what you've learned and firmly believed. There is, in other words, a content to what we believe in Christianity. There is a Christian faith. And the origin of that context, that content, is the sacred writings. Now, what are the sacred writings? Well, Timothy grew up in a Jewish home where the women converted to Christ. So those sacred writings would have been the Old Testament. And perhaps even many of the New Testament books that were floating around the churches at this point. Paul was pointing to the scriptures as the source of truth, particularly the Old Testament. Now, that's unexpected. We live in an age where even people in some corners of the church are ditching the Old Testament. This is an easy pick on this, but five years ago, Andy Stanley said as much without retraction when he claimed that, quote, Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well, unquote. That's basically what an ancient heretic named Marcion said when he proclaimed that the only real scriptures you could rely on were that of the Apostle Paul, and we'll throw in Luke on the side. Marcion said, bag the Old Testament. We don't need that anymore. But ironically, and contrary to Marcion and Stanley, Paul is saying, in our text, continue to learn and believe from the Old Testament. Paul quotes the Old Testament himself all the time in his letters. That's the crazy part of this teaching. He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus quotes the Old Testament all the time and counted it authoritative. Jesus even describes himself with Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach good news. So what's the application for us in light of all this kind of stuff that Paul is saying here? Well, here's a, a real simple application. Is we at South Charlotte embrace, we embrace all 66 books of the Old Testament. And this is called in the, uh, in the vernacular of the Reformation, Toda Scriptura. Toda Scriptura. And why is Toda Scriptura important? Because over 1,000 years or really thousands of years, people have built, built entire doctrines on one verse or one word of Scripture and focus on the trees, so much so that they miss the forest of the Bible's story. Now, that begs another question at this point. What is the forest of the Bible's story? Well, the end of verse 15 gives us a huge hint <laughs> When it says, the scriptures make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It is good to have answers to our questions and verses from scripture. I believe in proof texting. <laughs> but never, ever forget the bigger story of the forest. 
which is the gospel. The gospel. Romans 1.16 uses the same language that is here in this text when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel is the larger story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and Christ is the centerpiece of that story. And that story has power, according to Romans 1, to change us, to transform us from the heart. Now, here's why the gospel it is something to be taken most seriously and not just as another little T truth. Because you could walk out here today and say, well, there's, a, there's Christianity, another little T truth with all the truths in the world. Well, the big T truth of the gospel says this. This Jesus who came in the world, he not only was crucified, he's alive right now. He is resurrected from the dead. He is a living person who claims to be Lord of all right now. Now, what's this got to do with us? Well, first, embracing truth and embracing the truth of the gospel is, what's, is that we must do one big thing before God. We must embrace truth about ourselves. See, embracing truth is embracing the gospel, but that gospel says something about us. That left to our own devices and our own direction, we're lost. We're broken. We need grace. Embracing truth means submitting to the truth about ourselves before God. Second, all the noise and worldviews and contradicting reports we hear, the strong opinions of people we know, we need to get back to asking one question. And I'll give you one question in two forms. What is the gospel truth according to Scripture? What would the living Lord say through His Word about this thing? Scripture is what we want to embrace as the final authority of who God is, of who we are, and how we live. Now... <laughs> I know another question that might come up at this point, because I've asked this before many years ago. Why in the world would anyone land on the Bible as the final authority? I mean, aren't there other reliable authorities? Many of you may not know that I came actually from an unchurched home. I never went to church until I was about 14 years old. Uh, one time I was with a friend whose family were believers, and he was talking about the Bible. We, I guess we're around 12 years old, and I was full of myself and full of skepticism about all things religious. Uh, and I'll never forget telling him when he was talking about the Bible, the Bible, that's just another good book. You know what was arrogant about that statement? I had never read the Bible. And I was making judgments about it. I was simply saying I didn't want the Bible to have any impact on me or any 
authority over me. And little did I know that God would capture my heart years later and in his sense of humor, rescue me and call me to stand up here and talk about his Bible. But what about the Bible as the final authority? Well, there are tons of authorities out there that we can appeal to. I'll name three big ones. Reason. Science usually goes with reason. Tradition. We'll even throw culture in with tradition. And the third being the self. There is much to appreciate about these authorities. Reason and science has brought us a long way in the modern world with medicine and technology. Praise God. Tradition and culture has much to teach us in thousands of years of lessons learned. Even the self and trusting your gut can sometimes help us navigate tricky situations, although I prefer to think of trusting your gut more like wisdom, the accumulation of knowledge. All three are legitimate authorities and even have their place relative to Christianity. Christianity is a very thoughtful religion with a tremendous intellectual tradition. Christianity was the seedbed for science in an ordered world. And as an applied scientist myself, as an engineer, recovering electrical engineer, I can tell you that science and Christianity work together. Tradition matters for Christians. We believe in learning from the past. And even Christians affirm wisdom that comes from the self and even experience. But here's the thing that all of us need to ask when it comes to these authorities and matters of eternal significance. We need to ask this of ourselves around life, around ethics. Do you really want to rely on reason, science, tradition, culture, and especially the self as the final authority? I mean, science has been twisted in technology for evil like the Holocaust. Cultural tradition can harden things like racism and oppression and abuse. The self can lead us down narcissistic paths. I know better never ends well. well let me be clear, even the authority of the church has failed miserably at points in history. Maybe some of you have been wounded by church. I have. Christianity says Scripture is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. It says we should trust something and someone outside of us and far above us whose very nature is truth and love that is eternal in every way. Do you want to know why we should embrace the truth of, and the authority of God's Word? Well, it's because while the church has let people down at times, biblical authority was usually the thing that caused the church to let people down. They refused to submit to the authority of Scripture. Furthermore, Paul gives us two reasons in our text in verses 16 and 17 on why we should embrace the truth and authority of God's Word. Look at that with me in verse 16. Look at what it says. It says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable 
for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. There it is. Scripture is breathed out and is good for us. Paul says an interesting thing here. He says all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's a loaded statement. When Paul says all Scripture, he's talking again about everything, all the words in the Bible, including the Old Testament and likely the New Testament. And New Testament books were floating around the church with authority at this point in the church's history. Even Peter described Paul's letters as Scripture when he said, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, there are some things in his letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. Do you hear that? Peter calls Paul's letters Scripture as if they have the authority of Scripture. For those who want to make a hard differentiation between what Jesus and Paul say, which happens in the church sometimes, that's a problem. That's a problem you'll have to resolve. But Paul also says all Scripture is breathed out by God. B.B. Warfield sums up the, the, the real meaning of this well. This whole language of breathing out by God is the language of creation. <laughs> creation. When God spoke creation into being in the same way, God spoke the Scriptures into being while speaking through them to us. And how did He do it? Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Through choice prophets and apostles. Second Peter 1 says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Oh, I love that. Carried along by the Holy Spirit is key. This is how you can rely on the gospel coming through Scripture. You can trust that God created, put together this entire book, every word, every paragraph, every book, the whole thing from Genesis Revelation through the work of the Spirit over two millennia and multiple authors. God was weaving one story of the gospel together with Jesus as the main player all the way through. Now, of course, it's easy to say at this point, right, the Holy Spirit. Okay, how did that work? Well, let me be clear, it wasn't mechanical writing of Scripture where Holy Spirit came on a prophet or apostle and he just went into a zombie state, you know, like you see on Walking Dead, and he just starts writing and God takes control. None of that, no, actually, God so connected in the Spirit with the authors of Scripture that they taught and wrote with their time and place and personality. And you see that in the writings, the flair, even the humor sometimes of Scripture. So, how does this inspiration of Scripture affect us now? Well, here's a point I just don't want to miss amidst all the theology I just threw at you. God speaks. He speaks. 
He's a living God who speaks. He spoke then, he speaks now. He takes the words in Scripture and through the Spirit, he speaks to us. When Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. He did it with them then and there because they were about to go through some major suffering as Jesus was going to the cross literally the next day. But here's the thing about that, that uh, Genesis, oh, excuse me, John 15, 9 uh, verse that I gave you. You can bet that the living Christ at the right hand of God right now is saying the same thing to you in the Spirit. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. You <laughs> abide in my love. You see, God's eager to relate to us now. Read the Scriptures, but read it with different ears. Ears that are listening for the voice of God in the Spirit through the Word. Second, when God speaks through Scripture, He doesn't lie or deceive. There are no errors in the Bible. We call that inerrancy, particularly in the original autographs. The God who says, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not lie, all the way through Scripture, holds to his own ethic in Scripture. And because that's true, you can trust Scripture. And so-called errors, as some are, will bring up periodically, are almost always explainable, explainable if you're just a little curious, just a little curious. Third, Scripture affects us in a way that it's good for us. He goes on to talk about it's profitable for instruction, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And the end game being that we're equipped to do good work. In other words, when you take in Scripture, that's an important step in following Jesus. And here's what that's like. Following Jesus means you will actually start walking down a narrow path. And Jesus is with you. And his instruction is, I want you to go on this path, this narrow path with me. That's his instruction. But inevitably, as we're walking down the path, and you've got to know yourself a little bit, you get off the path and say, ooh, uh, this seems a little better than walking that narrow path. And that's where Jesus gives us reproof. Don't go that way. Instead, he calls us to repentance with correction and says, come back this way. So you come back on the path and walk with me more. And then he trains us in righteousness so we stay on the path, learning through the years the rhythms of trusting Jesus, listening to his voice in Scripture, and doing what he says. This is great gain. It is great good. Why? Because it's pointing us, all of Scripture is pointing us to following Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. His voice is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. That brings us to our final application. What does embracing truth look like at South Charlotte Press? We make Christ and His Word the center of our worship and our gatherings together. We build everything in ministry on his word, asking, what does Jesus want? 
Now, let me be clear, everybody, all right? Those of you visiting, those of you who've been a part of this, those of you who know me, we get this right somewhere between zero and 100% of the time. But here's the reality. If you stay in the Word, God will lead you to reform. A church is always learning and reforming over time so that things line up better with Christ's way. Now, one of the ways we learn to line up together is in life groups. That's a context where we do life together, and we listen to the voice of God in Scripture. We try to integrate the Word of God and gospel into that moment in community where real stuff comes up for us in life. You heard about D groups today, which is a more in-depth, high-commitment study of the gospel and the truths of Scripture. D groups are about life-on-life application of Scripture. It's about marinating in the gospel. Even leadership is listening to the Lord in Scripture. Lately, the session's been doing some difficult pastoral stuff together. And we go to the Scriptures to get our bearings on what is best, what is right and true, even when our own impulses are to do something very different. You know what you find in that case? It's kind of freeing and life-giving. When you just do what Jesus says in faith. So I have to ask you today, have you embraced truth yourself? The truth of the gospel for yourself? If you haven't yet and you're exploring the Christian faith, I would just ask you to do this. Be curious. Be curious about the DNA of the Bible. Look at Jesus as he is in Scripture, not as you assume he is. And some say when you read Scripture, it goes from you reading Scripture to Scripture reading you. If you're a follower of Christ, Continue on with Timothy and what you have learned through the years in good doctrine and good truth. Be noble Bereans, even amongst ourselves. Like, if I stand up here and say something, you're like, I don't know if I like that. Let's talk about it. I could be wrong. I am fallible. But that's what good noble Bereans will do, because I'm going to ask everybody else questions too. Jesus is speaking now. He's calling us to follow Embracing truth is gospel DNA that keeps us on the path with Jesus together. Or let me put it this way. It isn't just that we embrace truth. Real Christianity means this, that the truth of the gospel in our Christ actually embraces us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you've spoken in your word this inspired and errant word. And Lord, we pray that you would take this word and continue to teach us, lead us, help us to discover not only things we should do differently or, or reform in our church and in our lives, Lord, but yes, Lord, you would give us the gospel of hope that comes in Jesus. Continue to embed this longing, Lord, to embrace a truth that will not go away. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.